0: Hi everyone and welcome to episode 50 of Infraction. I'm Nadia and I'm Sally and today we're heading to Australia but this case starts in England with Rosie Iliff who gave birth to her daughter Mia Iliff Chung in London. Rosie was at one point a travel writer who wrote books and travel guides about the countries that she had visited and so as a child Mia travelled the world with her mum Mia's parents had split up by this point, but their breakup was amicable, and when Rosie and Mia were back in England, in between their travels, Rosie always made sure their daughter would see her father. As Mia grew from a toddler into a child, Rosie realised that she would soon have to stop her travelling so that Mia could go to school. She decided that the best place for them to settle down would be in the countryside somewhere, and so they moved to Worksworth in Derbyshire when Mia was six years old. As a child, Mia loved living in Derbyshire. It meant she was able to have a dog and go for long country walks and be outside with nature a lot more. Rosie enjoyed it too, and she took her love for writing and turned it into a more stable, rooted career. She started teaching at the local school, and she loved that it meant that she could always be around for Mia outside of normal school hours. As Mia grew into a young woman, she started focusing her mind on what she wanted to do for her own career – She loved children, and children really loved her, and so she knew she wanted to have a job that allowed her to work with them in some way. Therefore, at college, Mia studied psychology, communication and culture, and then she went on to do a second college qualification in childcare. She had always told her mum that she wanted to travel before she started her career, and of course, this was something that Rosie could understand, she too had had the travel bug when she'd been younger. At the age of 20, in 2015, just after college had ended, Mia packed up her bags ready for her worldwide travel. Rosie said that although she understood why Mia wanted to go travelling, she would have preferred it if she'd decided to do six weeks interrailing around Europe rather than a whole year on the other side of the world. Rosie took Mia to their local railway station in Derbyshire's Peak District and hugged her daughter goodbye. She said to Mia, Goodbye, I love you, be careful. She then told her daughter, Don't forget that I love you all around the world and back again, a phrase Mia and Rosie had been saying to each other since Mia had been a child. Rosie cried as her daughter's train departed to take her to the airport, but she knew deep down that this was something Mia wanted to do, and for that reason, it was the right thing to do. She was going to finally live her dream, and Rosie was happy for her daughter. Mia started her adventure in Morocco. She then travelled to Turkey, India, Vietnam and then she arrived in Australia. When Mia touched down in Australia, her mother breathed a huge sigh of relief. Australia and England have similar cultures. They spoke English there. Mia would be able to get a job waitressing or working in a bar. Rosie thought that her daughter would be safe in the place she saw as a parallel to England. In Australia, Mia spent most of her time in Surfer's Paradise, which is a town in Queensland on the Gold Coast in Eastern Australia. She made loads of friends at the Bedroom Lounge Bar, which was a bar that she worked at as a waitress. She had met a boy at the Surfer's Paradise Beach in April 2016, and the pair had started a relationship which lasted a few months. Their relationship ended in late July, though, because Mia's travel visa was coming to an end. Mia didn't want to leave Australia yet, though. She was living her best life, and she looked into ways to extend her visa. She came across the 417 visa which was available for people aged between 18 and 31 from 19 eligible nations to work and holiday in Australia each year. This visa would allow her to stay in Australia for a second year and all she needed to do to secure it was undertake 88 days of agricultural work.
1: Oh, right, yeah.
0: Are you familiar with this type of visa?
1: Mm, Yeah, do you not think... uh, Yeah, it's not really relevant, but I receive people doing like their farm stints on Facebook because they want to stay there?
0: No, so that's really strange because I hadn't actually heard of it, but then when I was reaching, researching this case, one of my uh, team members said that her daughter is doing is like currently doing her farm work in Australia. And I was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so Mia spoke to her mum about the visa. Um, and although Rosie missed Mia dearly, she understood why her daughter wanted to stay in Australia longer. She thought the visa seemed like a good idea. She didn't know much about the 88 days of farm work that was required for this visa, but Mia explained that loads of her friends had done it, and all Mia had to do was take an 800-mile trip north to a farm where she would be able to get her 88 days of work ticked off. Rosie assumed it was a government-run scheme, and she told her daughter to go for it. Mia was excited at the prospect of getting to stay in Australia for an extra year but she was really not looking forward to undertaking the 88 days of farm work that was required of her first. There was another boy who Mia was friends with called Chris, who also needed to undertake the three months of farming, and so Mia and Chris travelled north to Home Hill Farm together.
1: Was this not the boy that she was with? No. Oh, right. What was his name again?
0: Um, I didn't name him, because he's not really relevant okay. in the story, and honestly, I can't remember. <laughs> So there were a number of farms that they could have been placed at, but Home Hill was in need of workers, and so they were sent there. On the 14th of August 2016, Mia posted a series of photos on Instagram of her time at the bedroom lounge bar and wrote the caption, I love coming to work to see you all, and I'm going to miss you. The three months on the farm will be easy. It's just putting up with Chris I'm concerned about. We'll probably return tired, sunburned, and slightly insane, but I'll come back nonetheless. After a 15-hour drive from Surface Paradise to Home Hill, a very exhausted Mia and Chris got their bags and headed to the hostel on the farm. It was very run-down and completely different to where they had been staying in Surface Paradise. They realised that the tourist nickname of Hell Hill was definitely a more appropriate name for it than Home Hill. Oh God. Chris and Mia were given a room that they would have to share with one other person. That person was a 29-year-old French national named Smail Ayad. The way the 88 days works is each day of farm work you do is like a tick against one day and you have to essentially get 88 days ticked off and then you are granted the visa. You don't get paid for the days that you work and you have to pay for staying in the hostel.
1: Oh, what really?
0: Mm -hmm. So you're also not guaranteed work every day. So in reality, you could end up spending much longer than three months on the farm.
1: So people expect, so they expect people to effectively pay to work this period
0: yeah yeah how, what are they
1: meant to live on their own savings or they provided food
0: so you're the way that i understand it and i think it's different like depending on which farm or kind of which establishment you go to but largely it's you have a very very reduced room rate which would include like the food and things like that but they do expect you to pay that out of your own pocket um and if you can't then they'll sanction you so actually um 30-year-old Tom Jackson was another Brit who was staying at Home Hill Farm Um, and he'd had like such a bad time with the farm work that he was undertaking for his visa. So he'd already been to one farm in Victoria and he'd undertaken a few weeks of farm work Um, but for whatever reason that farm had refused to credit his work towards his 88 days Um, and he obviously wasn't being paid for them anyway. So he was struggling to make ends meet he was still forking out money for hostels to stay on the farm and it was hard because he wasn't being paid for it. So then Tom had heard that there was work at Home Hill. So he traveled to Home Hill um, in the belief that there was work there. But once he got to Home Hill, he was stuck in a cycle of debt. In the first few weeks at Home Hill, he built up rental debt to the hostel and because he couldn't pay the rent, they took his passport off him Tom wanted to leave. He couldn't afford to keep trying to get enough days to add to his 88 days, especially when he was doing the days um, and they weren't being credited. However, because the owners of Home Hill had confiscated his passport, he couldn't even leave and fly home. So he phoned his parents and his dad letters told him to go to the police, which Tom did do. But the police said they couldn't do anything. Um, they said, basically, we can get your passport back. But after we've left, you know, there's nothing stopping the hostel staff from taking it again. And you do owe them money. So he was in a really bad way because he was just stuck in this cycle.
1: That is awful. I was no, I did not know that it was kind of like that bad. I don't know why I just assumed that people were paid for farm work. But actually, this was just in place as a means of getting people to do it because like similar to here. Yeah, we do struggle with people to do farm work etc because it's like low paid hard labor so i assumed that it wasn't that they were using it to get like cheap free labor it was more they were just using it to get like anyone to do a job that probably like most australians don't actually want to do so this is like very shocking to me
0: Is it's really exploitative like it's insane mm. um, and we go on to talk yeah. about like other forms of like the exploitation that other people have faced as well a bit later on. But yeah, it's, it's really, um, I think it's really shocking. And it was really shocking, of course, to Rosie, Mia's mum, because she, like she she'd thought it was like a government run scheme, you know, with like a re- regulatory board and, you know, these farms were licensed and that kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, Tom had told his parents that he was just going to stay at Home Hill as he had nowhere else to go and he just needed to get his work done. His debts paid back to the hostel and his passport returned to him. Mia and Chris seemed to be luckier than Tom, whether it was because they were new or what, they didn't really know, but they were given work straight away. The two went out to do various farming jobs, and Mia posted a photo on Facebook on August 20th, 2016, with the caption, Day 4 done. Just 85 days left. Skills achieved. The ability to tell the difference between a rock and a clump of mud, and throwing stones really far. The sun is too hot, stupid Australia. So I think it's quite clear that the work she was undertaking was not the work that had been sold to her and so many other tourists. The setup at the hostel was also making Mia hate being at Home Hill. She told Chris after about a week that she had a really weird conversation with their roommate, Ayad. He had meant to have left the farm that morning, and Mia asked Ayad when he was leaving, to which Ayad had squared up to her and said, Why? Do you want me to leave? Mia had found the conversation incredibly intimidating and confusing, and she told Chris that she found Ayad a bit weird. Chris told her that he agreed. Ayad stared at Mia a lot, and it was odd, but it was fine because he was going to be leaving soon. Rosie also felt her daughter's unease from across the world. Mia had been in contact with Rosie every single day while she had been at the farm, and that was unusual for Mia. She'd only really kept in contact a couple of times a week when she'd been living in Surfers Paradise. On August 23rd, just three days after Mia had complained to Chris about Ayad, Chris woke at 11.20 to the sounds of horrendous screaming. Ayad had jumped onto Mia's bed and had started attacking her. CCTV footage then shows Ayad dragging Mia onto the balcony, taking a knife and slashing her neck. What? Tom Jackson, the Brit we mentioned earlier who had been staying at Home Hill, also heard the screams and he ran outside of his hostel room to see Mia being attacked on the balcony. Tom jumped from his balcony to Mia's and attempted to get Ayad off of Mia. The reports on what happened next differ but it seems that Ayad stabbed Tom several times before he turned towards the edge of the balcony, held his arms out in front of him and then jumped off the balcony headfirst in what witnesses said looked like an attempt to fly. Mia crawled back into the hostel and shut herself in the cubicle stall in the bathroom. Another resident at the hostel, Daniel, ran into the bathroom and found Mia lying on the floor. He ran out and called out that she'd been stabbed and they needed an ambulance. He then rushed back to Mia's side and tried to apply pressure to her wounds to stop the bleeding.
1: Oh my god, I literally, when you said attacked, I thought like, you'd be like hitting her or something. But, oh my god.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. So then Tom Jackson ran down to find out where the ambulance was and at this point it seems that he was bleeding a bit from the stab wounds that he had sustained. Reports then state that Iad then lunged for Tom again and, once again, attacked him with a knife. As Tom Jackson lay on the floor bleeding to death, Iad then attacked another man who was trying to apprehend him. This man was Grant Scholes, the hostel manager. Grant was stabbed several times in the leg, but Ayad did not hit any of his vital organs or arteries. Ayad also attacked and killed one of the hostile dogs. Within hours of the attack, back in England, two police officers knocked on Rosie Eilif's door in Derbyshire and told her the devastating news that her daughter had been fatally stabbed. Rosie said she felt complete disbelief. She had just spoken to Mia on the phone that morning. She did not believe that her daughter could now be dead. Stuart Cormack, Rosie's partner, said that when the police arrived, the emotional impact on Rosie was huge because, quote, it is difficult to lose a child in any circumstances, but when it's your only child and you're a single parent, it's your entire world that's gone. Rosie was not told much information at all about what had happened to Mia and how she had been killed, just that she'd been stabbed and that another Brit had tried to defend her and that he was in hospital in critical condition. Just an hour's drive away from Rosie, in a small town in Cheshire, Les and Sandra Jackson were receiving similar news about their son, Tom. Les recalls his admiration, but also his disbelief that Tom had come across a knifeman and had still gone to help Mia with no regard for his own safety. Les immediately flew to Australia to be with his son who was in critical condition in hospital. Rosie also flew to Australia, but not to be by her daughter's side, Instead, she had to fly there to bring her daughter's body home. Mm, fucking hell. She said that the Brisbane police had said that they would wait for her at the Brisbane airport and that they would escort her to their hotel. She said that people around her getting off the plane must have thought that she was being arrested for some horrible crime, but of course, she didn't care. Having the police there was an incredible reassurance for her. The first thing she asked the officer who came to speak to her was, how's Tom Jackson? It had only been a few days since she had heard that Tom had tried to save her daughter and he was still in hospital fighting for his life. The officers didn't give her any information, though. They had been instructed to not say anything to her as a liaison officer from the consulate would be the one to talk to her about everything that had happened. When she met the liaison officer, Rosie was told the devastating news that Tom Jackson had died from his injuries, specifically a stab wound to his brain. He had also sustained stab wounds to his right eye, head, neck and chest. Rosie was absolutely devastated that Tom had died trying to protect her daughter. He was the definition of a hero.
1: Why? I just I need to know why this happened.
0: We kind of do get into it, but, but ultimately there is no real answer. But we we'll, we will get there. Rosie met with the regional crime coordinator, Ray Rowdier from the Queensland Police Department, a man who had been tasked with the role of sorting through all of Mia's possessions. Rosie said that even he, this big, burly man of six foot five, broke down sobbing when he had to describe to Rosie what her daughter's last moments were like. He said that witnesses stated that Ayad had been infatuated with Mia. It was unclear what had happened in their room, but he had attacked her. He had stabbed her, and when Tom had come to save her, she had managed to crawl away into the bathroom cubicle. He said that it was clear that she had fought very hard for her life. There was a lot of blood in there, but she didn't just lie down and die. She fought. The injury that killed her was a stab wound to her heart. Mia had also sustained stab wounds to her head and her neck. He then asked Rosie if she wanted to see Mia's body. Rosie wrote a really moving blog post for The Independent and I'm going to read to you a bit of what she said about the thoughts going around her head during this time. She said, The biggest decision for me now is whether to view Mia's body. I had decided emphatically not to. I felt I didn't need to. I'm not afraid of death and had derived great comfort from being with my father as he died and I had not wanted to leave his side in any hurry. But my father wasn't stabbed brutally several times. He was still warm and aged 84. Mia's nan, Ruby, is trying to make me reconsider. She thinks I need closure. What is this closure? Acceptance of death? I don't accept it. Mia's alive here in my heart. She tells me every day what to do. Does it matter that I talk about her in the present tense? Does closure mean I'll forget her? On the other hand, naysayers say if I see her that will eclipse all other images. But how could it wipe out the image of Mia tottering off on her first independent bike ride? Or Mia acting out a demanding role on stage? Or Mia coming home from her first science lesson at Anthony Jail, blown away by a teaching style she could actually comprehend? Nothing will eclipse those memories. Could I live to regret not seeing her? I just don't know on this one. And for once, Mia, who generally has an opinion on everything, is silent.
1: God, that is just so heartbreaking. Like... It's very insightful into what like it must feel like. But actually, gosh don't even know what I'd do. Like, she's right. Would you want to see um the body given what had happened? And actually like why are we so obsessed with the fact that people need to? It's just a decision, oh I don't know, I guess you should never ever want to think about really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's it's really heartbreaking and but it's just so I don't know. I guess, yeah, it's just so so deep to see the insight of something like this, of like what a parent must go through when they're asked that question. So the media in Australia and here in the UK ran wild with stories about the attack and the attacker, Smail Ayad. I haven't referenced him much at all in this episode, and that really is because there is very little information out there about him. He was 29, a French national in Australia, on a tourist visa in the same way Mia and Tom were. He had gone to Home Hill Farm to undertake his 88 days for his visa extension too. The media ran stories that he had shouted Alu Akbar before stabbing Mia and that he'd also sung the French national anthem. And it's just so hard to know what, what the truth is here, like whether his crimes were motivated by religion or terrorism or whether they were motivated by his infatuation with Mia. Witnesses had come forward after the attack and said that Ayad had constantly stared at Mia and was obsessed with her. And he'd also said very strange things like, Mia can sleep in my bed because she's going to be my wife, and stuff like that. Mia had reportedly asked the hostel manager to move rooms because she felt so uncomfortable about the way Ayad was behaving around her, but they hadn't moved her to a different room. The Islamic Council of Queensland criticised media reports for quickly linking Ayad's attack to Islamic terrorism. And just a few days after the attack, the authorities released a statement stating that they were confident that the attacks and murders were not an act of terrorism. Rosie also felt the pressure of the media and the public wanting to label the murder of her daughter and Tom Jackson as an act of terrorism. She said that she knew that people were looking for someone to blame, but she felt that the public and the media alike were going to turn on her if she denied them the opportunity to retreat to xenophobia. She didn't believe the attacks were motivated by religion, but she was worried that the media, who really wanted to print racially aggressive headlines, were going to turn on Rosie and print dirt and lies about her if she didn't give them what they wanted. Ayad had been arrested at the scene and had been detained in custody. There was no doubt that it was him who had committed these awful murders and attacks at Home Hill. There were dozens of eyewitnesses, including Grant Scholes, who had been stabbed by Ayad but survived. Ayad had been caught on CCTV and his DNA was all over the knife and the crime scenes. Shortly after his arrest, Smile Ayad was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, having had a major depressive episode, and they also diagnosed him with a cannabis dependency. He was detained at a Queensland mental health facility. He had to undergo an assessment to determine whether he was fit to stand trial, at which it was deemed that he was not. Smile Ayad never stood trial over the murders of Mia Islav Chung and Tom Jackson. All criminal charges against him were dropped in 2018 after the Mental Health Court found that he was of unsound mind when he killed both Mia and Tom and attacked Grant.
1: Okay, so that's interesting because I think... I do, to be honest, think that when... There is some kind of religion involved, or like different ethnicity to white British. Certainly, here I think, as we've heard in the story, people are very quick to point to terrorism. Mm-hmm. Conversely, when it is like someone who's white British, they'll more often fall onto a mental health diagnosis. And actually, given that prior to this, like there wasn't any reports of him trying to, um, I don't know, like preaching anything radical. Mm-hmm like at the farm was there before this event so it kind of does follow that something like paranoid schizophrenia where maybe he was having some sort of um yeah like hallucinations or uh yeah hearing kind of like demands and things that actually that yeah schizophrenia could explain something like this and I think it's probably important to know though that when people hear things like oh he didn't stand trial this doesn't mean that people just walk away absolutely scot-free do you know what I mean they are still treated to be dangerous individuals but just with the mindset that actually they are dangerous because they are unwell so I think it's just important to note that like the trial wouldn't have ended and he wouldn't have walked free onto the streets with absolutely no ramifications but actually it would just be decided that yeah prison and like a trial wasn't the appropriate steps to take here that he needed to be yeah, actually, in a hospital. But in that hospital, he would still have had a lot of his freedoms restricted, etc. Like, people don't just forget that they've committed, like, an atrocious crime just because they're not, like, tar- charged and proceeded with it in court, if you see what I'm trying to say.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, completely. And, like, the thing with this, of course, was that he wasn't an Australian national, so he was a French national, so mm. he was being, yeah, held in a mental... uh, uh hospital for Uh, Well, I think he was he was held there for four years after the attacks and the decision on whether he would be repatriated to France was in the hands of the Australian border force. And in July of 2020, the decision was made to send him back to France. um, And a report in the Brisbane Times stated that he would continue to receive treatment in a French medical facility upon repatriation. So, yeah, like you are completely right. And I think it's interesting what you say Like, prison isn't the right place for him because that's exactly how... Rosie Mia's mum felt because she would said that you know a lot of people were really angry at the decision to not convict Ayad and although Rosie did say that you know there were no winners in that decision she did say also that prison wasn't the right place for him and um I think that takes quite a strong person to be able to say that when that individual has just so senselessly taken your daughter's life.
1: Mm. Yeah I completely agree but I think that um yeah fundamentally I think it's because people maybe have like two very polarized view of like what prison will involve versus like what a hospital like or treatment facility would involve when actually like there probably is a lot more parallels than people think in terms of like yeah extreme structures and uh yeah kind of losing some of your freedoms and stuff um and also I think that it's it's very emotional isn't it when there's been like a huge crime involved but like actually part of breaking down like stigma around mental health like illnesses etc has to be also true of like when crimes are committed and stuff like you know we have to be able to view people as unwell mm-hmm. and differentiate them from people who are just yeah evil as kind of I know. People like to say who can't introduce crime, but actually, you know, psychopaths really. Um. So I think it is important to differentiate between those two things, and also to understand that by putting someone who might be incredibly like unstable into something like prison, actually, you're putting loads of other people's lives at risk. Mm-hmm. And whether you care for those prisoners or not, actually, you're putting guards, prisoners everyone do you know what I mean until you treat someone and do actually take them to a hospital that is equipped to deal with the needs of someone who actually is as unwell as he was then you are just really consenting to probably more people um being like murdered and stuff so I think it's actually it is important that sometimes unfortunately people don't go to prison and stand trial and instead are treated differently like I do think it's an essential part of like a well-functioning criminal justice system
0: yeah absolutely and I liked actually what you just said about the fact that yes people might look at it and think oh well I don't really care about other prisoners being um put at risk but you are right like there there are prison guards there who put their lives on the line every day for um you know working in these institutions and, and we need prison guards to work in these institutions to keep yeah, the and not all the 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 prisoners
1: are vile child murderers as well. Do you know what I mean? Like...
0: Yeah, completely. So, after Mia's death, Rosie didn't go back to work as a teacher because she was too emotional. Instead, she spent her time fighting for a reform in the regulations surrounding the 417 visa. This was, of course, also a cause close to Mr and Mrs Jackson's hearts too, given that their son would not have been there at Home Hill had the scheme been properly regulated. After Mia's murder, Rosie had been contacted by many other backpackers in Australia who shared their experiences of working in the farming industry for their visa extensions. Rosie read one account from a girl who had been made to clean and work on a conveyor belt whilst it was moving. Her hair was caught in the conveyor belt and the poor girl was scalped and lost an ear as a result. Fuck. There were so many stories of this nature, stories and accounts from people who had been exploited by the 88 days visa requirement. We heard about Tom Jackson's own experience earlier, where he had worked for weeks on a farm without any remuneration and without any credits towards his 88 days' work. Some of the stories that Backpacker shared with Rosie really did sound like accounts of modern slavery. Many people, much like Tom, had their passports taken away from them and they were made to stay in hostels and were racking up debt after debt with no way to pay them off. They were stuck in a cycle of working to pay off their room debt, but also not being able to move past that to be able to start doing the work that would be credited against their 88 days. Another woman wrote to Rosie and said that when she was staying at one hostel in Australia, she couldn't afford to pay her room rent and the hostel owner walked into her bedroom on more than one occasion and demanded sex from her. She had no idea what she could do about it because he had her passport and she couldn't leave the hostel she felt incredibly trapped and because it wasn't a government run scheme there was nobody she could talk to about it
1: so you say that it isn't like government run etc but if this is a visa that a means of like getting a visa to stay there then to some extent like the government are involved in this because like visas are provided by government do you know what i mean like it's not there must be some link here i understand like it sounds incredibly unregulated but like this is and this will be a policy by the government to to improve like increase the numbers of people they have working on farms etc like immigration is decided at that level surely
0: yeah (laughs) yeah that's on me i think that's my phrasing but (laughs) i've just like messed that up with my phrasing so yes it is it is you are right it is government-led but it's not regulated by any one body so if there was like a regulatory body who um did oversee everything then that that would yeah. mean that you would have licensed farms you would know who was going to um be doing the work there there would be a clear structure yeah, like as to unions, what would tick off completely there would be people that you could could almost like make your complaints to and stuff like that um and it would also mm. mean that it would be easier to punish these farm owners because um there was like another account and um i can't remember if i put it in the notes here but i remember reading another account where um, one of the locals spoke to Rosie because Rosie flew out to Australia to like speak to um, them about, like, to speak to the government and the authorities there about everything that was going on. And uh, one of the locals there said that he knew of a farm where he, um, where the farmers would refuse to sign off on um, girls' visas um, to say that they had done the 88 days farming work unless they had sex with them.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. It sounds like it's very very open to, yeah, like bribery, exploitation, etc, because there's far too much power concentrated in like one way, isn't there? Like you say, with no one actually like regulating or inspecting or reviewing, etc.
0: Yeah, completely. Like if there was a central body, it would provide the regulation. Um, and it, yeah, it, it would essentially mean that there would be licensed farms, and it would be safe. And you know, parents would know that their children were going somewhere safe that people you know knew about, they wouldn't be exploited, they wouldn't be working for like, less than minimum wage or like not working for any money at all, that kind of thing. Mm. So yeah, like I said, Rosie took multiple trips to Australia to talk to the authorities out there and to talk to groups of people who were also campaigning for a change. The campaign groups agreed that the idea behind the scheme um, was fundamentally a good one. 417 visa holders make up a third of the agricultural workforce in Australia. They are essential to the economy, but the scheme needs to be regulated and laws need to be put in place. In October 2016, the Fair Work Ombudsman wrote a report on the 417 visas, and it stated that, quote, After consulting with more than 4,000 working holiday visa holders, the Fair Work Ombudsman found that the 88-day farm work program created an environment where unreasonable and unlawful requirements were being imposed on visa holders by unscrupulous businesses, exploitative work practices occurring in isolated places. Visa holders are generally recruited through word of mouth. Almost a third of workers did not receive payment for some or all of the work they did. More than a third described regional work as a fair or poor experience. More than a third claimed they were paid less than the minimum wage. The fair work ombudsman had pursued individual farmers and other establishments for underpaying workers etc. But really, other than those claims, I can't really tell what's changed. When you Google the 417 visa, it does say that you can work anywhere and it doesn't say specifically that it has to be farming. But I'm not sure though, if that is a change or if that's, you know, the way it's always been, uh, but that just maybe agricultural work was the most prevalent work that you could do for this visa or whatever. Do you have any comments on the 417 visa Sal? Because really nothing's like changed on it, to be honest.
1: No, no. And I think like, oh, you know, recently I still see um people like doing it so it's definitely very much still a thing that happens um it may be I don't know I wonder whether like the farmers are more uh wary of it now that there was like you know a couple of uh horrific crimes that led to it getting a lot of press like I wonder if just kind of naturally it's sort of self-regulated slightly because yeah people know that possibly, like, people will take tourists' complaints, etc. a lot more seriously. Like, in this case, obviously, we heard that the police were spoken to, like, by Tom Jackson, for example, and didn't do anything. I imagine that, like, later on, there would have been a review into that, given that he then actually died working mm-hmm. towards his visa. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know to all. I'd be really interested to hear if, like, listeners or, like, anyone's had experience of doing it would have an idea like, what was their experience? Like, is it improved from where it was just because, yeah, actually, like, the world suddenly was, like, you know, it had the world's attention as a scheme. Um, Or actually, is there still lots of atrocities? Like, it, to be honest, I find it hard, like, unless it's something the police cramp, clamp down on very heavily, it's hard to imagine how you would stop, like, people being exploited, etc. because, actually, like, it's just a perfect dynamic, isn't it? It's very isolated farms um very desperate people who are trying to stay like in the country and this is their only means of doing it so probably will tolerate the odd like workers violation and then yeah a lot of consolidated power and that you require like very senior people at the farm to sign off in order for you to get your visa so just as a dynamic it's quite hard to imagine how um you wouldn't still see quite a lot of like workers rights abuses cropping up unless it was like heavily regulated and, you know, farmers had to submit like what workers they had on like any given roster and how they were paying them, et cetera.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is also important to say, isn't it? Is that this isn't, I'm not saying like this, every single person who does this scheme is being exploited. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying it is, like you said, is very prevalent and it's a very uh, easy way to exploit workers, like you said, because yeah. people are desperate.
1: Yeah, and also I think, you know, it happens let's just say as well this isn't just a problem that's unique to australia like farm and labor workers very often like are examples of modern slavery Mm -hmm. and like are hubs for kind of um yeah human trafficking and things like that and that is true of like all across europe and things as well and across the world unfortunately so yeah this isn't just a, a an australian issue
0: no completely so Mia was buried in Worksworth Church and Tom Jackson's funeral was attended by Mia's mum, Rosie. Aww. Thomas Jackson received a posthumous Queen's Gallantry Medal for his role in trying to save Mia. Oh,
1: God, that must have been... Well, I know his parents like still wouldn't have probably made them feel that much better, but I don't know, a bit emotional, you'd think, wouldn't it?
0: Oh, yeah, completely. The fact that it had just been recognised, yeah, 100%. Yeah so thank you so much for listening to today's episode as always if you would like some bonus content and to hear more from us then you can support the show over on patreon and if you do thank you please also consider leaving us a review if you haven't already we do see all of them and to those who have left us a review thank you it really does make our day and motivates us to push forward with creating this content have a wonderful week and we will see you next week bye bye